TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with design writer Ralph Kaplan about his long and colorful career and about the responsibility of designers. There's a difference between making things right and making things nice, which is what many designers in the past thought their mission was. Here's Debbie Millman. For more than 50 years, Ralph Kaplan has been thinking, writing, and speaking about design. This year, he received the Design Mind Award from the Cooper Hewitt's National Design Museum, which recognized him for changing how we think about and practice design. In his world, design deals not only with products, but also the larger context in which they are used. Ralph Kaplan is also an author. His books include By Design, which has the wonderful subtitle, Why There Are No Locks on the Bathroom Doors in the Hotel Louis XIV, and Other Object Lessons. Milton Glaser has said of his writing, At heart, Kaplan is a moralist who understands that the subject of design permits him to write about anything from an ethical point of view. He writes as though he believes that there is no such thing as popular culture, only culture itself. He currently writes for Voice, the online journal of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. Ralph Kaplan lectures widely, and he teaches a graduate course in design criticism here at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where he joins me in our studio today. Welcome to Design Matters, Ralph. Thank you, Debbie. Congratulations on your Design Mind Award. Very, very well-deserved, and it was such a treat and an honor to be able to see you receive the award last week. Thank you very much. So you've been doing design. You've been working in the design business. You've been writing about design and involved with design for 50 years. But from what I understand, before you were involved in design, you were also a stand-up comic, and you were also a boxer. So can you tell us a little bit about those two early experiences and how that led you to design? Because it doesn't seem like a very natural path. Well, I I wasn't 
really a boxer. That was a fantasy. So you fantasized I, about being a boxer. Yeah. I don't know. For some reason or other, I was, I was no good at sports. And I was too small to play football anyway. And I had the idea that boxing was something that you could do if you could just hang in there. <laughs> it coincided with my getting kicked out of high school. Why did you get kicked out of high school? That's a long story. We've got time. I got kicked out of high school for um, appearing in a play that I hadn't been cast in <laughs> and uh, using my own material. Did you just walk on the stage mid-performance as some sort of conceptual no, project? I, <laughs> I had been, I, I'd been in every play I could possibly be in, I think, in, um, in high school. But um, this year the play was a musical. And, uh, what musical? It was called Hit the Deck. Anyway, I couldn't sing, and so I couldn't be in it and wasn't in it. What I was in was um, algebra class, which I was failing. And um, if you were in the play, to get out of any class, you just had to sign a um, pad that was on the teacher's desk that said, Hit the Deck Rehearsal. And so uh, I realized, since I was flunking algebra anyway, that I might as well go to the rehearsal. What did you do during the rehearsals? I sat there and learned the lines and sat there with my friends. They were all in it. When the play finally was presented, I realized, or my friends realized, that it would be very strange to have gone to all these rehearsals and not be in it. Especially since you knew all the lines I to the entire the play. Well, and also, you know, there were a lot of deckhands, so you could stand around right, in, hit a, the deck in, in a sailor deck suit. Hand, yep. And I did that the first night. The second night, I was emboldened to um, do a bit more. I don't remember what, but I made up a couple of lines. <laughs> and um, This is fantastic. And uh, my friends, I thought were my friends... They were. It was a son. Did um, they rat you out? They ratted me out when I appeared. They said stowaway, oh. and they <laughs> they dragged me to the front. And uh, the algebra teacher happened to be there that night, and uh, discovered that I hadn't been in class uh, all those weeks, and had never been in the play. I was suspended. I wasn't expelled, but I was suspended and. Uh, was afraid, I really was afraid to tell my father. And so every morning I uh, got my school books together and uh, I went off in the direction of school, but I went to Pittsburgh on the bus. And then in Pittsburgh I had nothing to do and <clears throat> no money to do anything with. And so I walked through the, um, the hill district of Pittsburgh, which was um, almost entirely black at that time. And um, I walked all the way to the top of the hill, which was, I guess, a few miles. It was a long walk. And there at the top was a gymnasium called the Pittsburgh Lyceum. And the Lyceum, interestingly, was placed there, but no blacks were allowed. It was both an amateur and professional uh, gym. Billy Kahn trained there later became lightweight, heavyweight, and a lot of amateurs, but they were all white. Anyway, I joined and um, really liked it and had one fight that I wasn't prepared for, 
but the coach said, look, boxing is better than training any day, so you ought to do this now. And uh, what terrified me was I was in the ring with a guy who had a mustache. I was 16, and I thought, <laughs> here I am facing somebody who, who's old enough to have a mustache. Anyway, I lost. <laughs> but... Um, so that's how you got into boxing, or that's how you well, attempted to and get that's into how, boxing. That's how I got out of it. And so did your parents ever find out that you'd been suspended? Uh, yeah, because uh, sooner or later, you know, the school noticed that my uh, father hadn't come to school, although he was supposed to. Oh. And, uh, so they had summoned him when you were suspended. Yeah, so I came back from training one day and uh, discovered that my parents knew, and so I had to meet with the superintendent and principal and whoever else with my father. And um, my father decided something had to be done with me. And the most disagreeable thing he could ever think of was military school, which he always called reform school. And to make the threat more palpable, my mother sent for brochures from uh, Culver, Valley Forge, which, by the way, is where both Steve Heller and uh, J.E. Salinger went. Well, think of the people you could have met. Oh, I know, right. And uh, the brochures, I guess this was my first encounter with real graphic design. The brochures were wonderful. They were in color, and they had pictures of all these happy cadets on horses and going to dances. And I wanted to go to all of them. And so I insisted on going to military school. Well, then my, uh, my dad backed away. First of all, they were very expensive. And your dad owned a butcher shop, if I recall correctly. um, A wholesale grocery store. And so they compromised, and I agreed somewhat reluctantly to go to a semi-military school. So you left your high school at that time and then went to the semi-military school. Right. So how did you end up being involved in the world of design? Well, I was, uh, like you, I was an English major. In college. Oh, I see you've done some research, Mr. Kaplan. I have. <laughs> You're researching uh, me. I'm researching you. I know. Mm, very it's interesting. Tit for tat. <laughs> um, anyway, I was an English major and didn't know particularly what I was going to do. And by accident, became um, a college professor for about four years. And then decided uh, clearly that wasn't what I wanted to do, or at least I didn't want to go through the uh, work of getting a PhD. So I came to New York, and I was working for a humor magazine that folded. What humor magazine? I wasn't able to find that one out. It was called Bounty. It was a very funny magazine to work for, but it wasn't funny to read. I mean, it wasn't a very good magazine, and uh, it wasn't surprising that it folded although it had um, had good people. But anyway, I needed a job, and uh, I'd just been married. And uh, a friend of mine uh, told me about an opening at a magazine called Industrial Design, which I'd never heard of, edited by a woman named Jane Mitaraki at the time. Now Jane Thompson. Now Jane Thompson. And I, of course, never heard of her either. But um, I called cold, and they did have an opening. And uh, so Jane uh, 
interviewed me. It must have been quite a wonderful experience for you both to be on the stage last week getting awards from the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum. Yeah, it was. A, it really became a very prized coincidence. So she hired you to work at the magazine. She did, but it, it was um, at the job interview, Jane, understandably, she said, um, what do you know about industrial design? And um, finally I said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and... Um, Later, I decided that she hired me either because anybody who gave that answer at a job interview was either um, so honest you couldn't afford not to hire them or so dumb you could manipulate them into doing anything (laughs) you wanted them to do or in my case, probably both. But anyway, you know, Jane gave me a couple of trial assignments and then one of the questions that came up inevitably was, uh, if you were working here, what would you write about? Is there anything you see in the magazine that we're not covering adequately? And I had no idea. I'd never seen a magazine like it before. But I had read a newspaper article that week about reusable packaging. It was a feature article about an ice cream container that could double as a purse, when it didn't have ice cream in it, I guess. And so I said, well, I think there's not nearly enough done on reusable packaging. <laughs> so when I went to work for ID, the first article I was assigned was a piece on reusable packaging, dresses that could be made of burlap sacks and cigar boxes that could be made into stages and so forth. Well, The magazine at the time wasn't doing much on packaging at all. And so I became, by default, the uh, packaging editor. I did all the packaging articles and uh, infuriated an organization called the Package Designers Council. The PDC. The PDC. Does it still exist? No, it doesn't still exist. But it was just a bunch of old white guys that were being very, very um, persnickety about what could be or couldn't be considered good packaging. And it was something that I paid a lot of attention to in the 80s and 90s. They weren't so much persnickety as they were out to get me. (laughs) I felt Um, they were out to get me too. (laughs) I I mean, they were positively hostile I did an article about the guy who uh, changed the Quaker Oats package from, um, you know, a picture of a Quaker who was a model of uh, probity and sternness and everything associated with Quakers and changed him into a kind of uh, simpering fool. He was supposedly uh, friendlier. Do you know what his name is, by the way? No. His name is Larry. People at Quaker have named the Quaker Larry. Very, very unfortunate choice for the Quaker, I think. Oh, I do too. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I don't even know a Quaker named Larry. That so does... he was. Sim- you felt that they changed him to something that was simpering. Yeah, but I all I did was show the um, the package and the evolution of the package and the changes and but but the design was pretty bad and the. Uh, Package Designers Council said there are a lot better examples than this of design. They got very angry. I made peace with them finally. But um, somebody wrote a letter saying, um, 
all your packaging articles are written by somebody who doesn't know anything about packaging. Well, they were right. I didn't. At least initially, I didn't. Well, what would you think you would need to know about packaging to write about packaging? Well, what the problems are in getting packages on the shelf, which was the uh, real competitive movement in packaging. And you'd have to know about printing techniques and so forth. But in terms of the impression that a pack is making to people, that would be something that I think almost anybody that buys a pack or has an experience with a pack would be able to be entitled to have an opinion upon. Yes. Well, I was entitled to have an opinion upon it. They just didn't think I ought to air it <laughs> right. in the pages of a design magazine. They, they probably were right. Uh, at least for a while they were right. Are you always so hard on yourself about your abilities, Ralph? You're such an extraordinary writer. I mean, you write the most remarkable things. And I actually want to ask you about a, a paragraph that you wrote about a McDonald's hamburger. And it, it's so exquisitely beautiful that I actually want to read you the paragraph and ask you if we can talk a little bit about it. So you say, what is a McDonald's hamburger if not an industrial designed product? The result of market research, facility planning, productivity incentives, demographic studies, and product engineering. Each component represents a conscious decision based on testing. The amount of meat is uniform. The quality of the meat is controlled. The dosage of pickle, onion, and special sauce has been carefully calibrated. How magnificent. What a gorgeous paragraph about a McDonald's hamburger. Well, it's better than eating one, probably. Well, it depends on your taste, I think. <laughs> I think that that's unquestionably a gorgeous paragraph. I happen to like McDonald's hamburgers from time to time. I find it good comfort food, although I am quite afraid of what it might be doing to my body. But talk about your approach to writing. How, how does one come up with a paragraph like that? What does even one get an idea to write about a McDonald's hamburger in quite that way? I think that particular example probably came from um, my constant effort to uh, convince people that that everything's designed, that more things are designed than they're aware of. And um, this started a long time ago with me when um, I, I once edited a book and wrote an introduction describing designers as problem solvers. Yes. This is the way they describe themselves. It was the way I described them. Over the years, though, it, it began to seem grandiose and also um, insufficiently um, specific. It occurred to me that designers were problem solvers. So were mathematicians, private eyes, uh, medical diagnosticians. And uh, coming back to McDonald's, to a guy hungry for scrambled eggs, a short order to cook is a problem solver. It's not such a big deal. I was trying to uh, emphasize that design really uh, wasn't going to get anywhere until designers began realizing that the products and artifacts and buildings and interiors that they uh, created were not complete until they were able to take into account the situation it was being designed for. And sometimes the situation itself was designed. And um, 
This was in the 60s. And um, the first example I found, and, and it still is a compelling example to me, was a sit-in. And uh, the first time I introduced this idea, nobody thought they heard me right. I said, what did you say? A sit-in. Sit and I said, a sit-in. And I, I said, you know, these kids in Montgomery, Alabama, didn't just sit down at the um, Woolworths lunch counter because they were hungry or wanted a snack. I said, this was planned. They knew they were going to force restaurants to serve blacks. And um, they knew how they were going to do it. I discovered this. I mean, I didn't discover it. But I had taken a, um, a workshop when I was in college with uh, a wonderful guy named Bayard Rustin, who actually did all the organizing for the, um, the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King gave his favorite speech. Rustin never got credit for it because, uh, as it turned out, uh, he was gay. And um, they were afraid for PR reasons to uh, have him in the, in the forefront. Unbelievable. But anyway, I took a workshop with him in which he, he would have us play different roles in um, integrating a theater or integrating a restaurant. And um, I remember I took the role of a, a black man going into a restaurant. And then Rustin afterwards would uh, do an analysis. And he said this was completely unconvincing. He said, no Negro walks into a restaurant that way. Uh, he said, first of all, you walk by it to case the joint and see how friendly or unfriendly it looks. And the whole thing was so well thought out and planned and intelligent. And I realized that that's what design ought to be. That, um, you know, if you designed an office with that kind of attention to uh, uh, not just doing a desk and a chair, but knowing what kind of work went on there, what did people have to do to do that work? What did they have to know? How would they find it out and so forth? This seemed to ring a bell. And um, I, di I didn't, by the way invent the uh, the term situation design. Although I sometimes when I'm credited with it, I don't deny it, but, <laughs> but I, I didn't. I want to talk to you about branding a little bit. I, I noticed, I was looking through your index in By Design, and I came across the word branding, and there was only one... You did? I did. There's only one entrant for the word branding in By Design. And only in one sentence. Did I say, know you then? No, uh, I don't oh. think you did. Um, you use the, the word brand one time when you write, in the 21st century, graphic services have been expanded to include branding, which was what cowboys did when they burned a logo into the hide of every steer they could round up. That form of branding was done with the same rationale as its successor. Without it, the cattle, like corporations, would all look the same. <laughs> so I'm wondering, how do you really feel about branding? That doesn't tell you. Well, um, no. I want, I want I, you to I know, elaborate. I know you you believe it's much more complex than that. And, well, of course, it, it is. it depends on it's, the day, Ralph. It depends uh, yeah, on the day. It's, it's, it isn't exactly what they, uh, what they did in John Wayne movies. But it started with that idea. 
And the idea that many products would be indistinguishable if they weren't very heavily branded, I think is, is valid today. One used to take for granted that branding went with the territory, assuming that the territory was selling something. If you were selling um, a lot of it and making various versions of it under the same name, uh, you had a brand. So that um, somebody, um, you know, getting Campbell's soup would... uh, think that the same people who made the chicken noodle and also made the tomato and the lentil and so forth. And now it, it takes on much more complexity, I guess because the, uh, the problems of, uh, of marketing do. So do you feel that designers have more responsibility in branding than they ever have or should have? I don't think there's a limit to how much they uh, they should have. Well, I, there was an, there was a quote in in by design as well about your your thoughts about planned obsolescence, which you noted that uh, Brooke Stevens is credited with having coined the term in 1954. And then I think somewhat facetiously, you write designers did not invent the process of forced obsolescence; they're merely hired to make it profitable. And so I was wondering if you felt that designers have more of a responsibility to have a bigger role in the process of creating brands to somewhat thwart or avoid the idea of planned obsolescence, which is the idea that a product has a specific shelf life. And I'm not really talking about milk so much as I am talking about fashion or technology, that products have a very specifically built-in Uh, expiration date when they're no longer going to be able to work or to be usable or to be fashionable? And do you feel that designers should have a bigger role in controlling forced obsolescence? Planned obsolescence is what um, Brooke Stevens prided himself on having invented. Once I had an argument with him, and his biggest client at the time was uh, the Miller Brewing Company. But anyway... um, we we were having a discussion of the uh, designer's responsibility. And uh, Brooke said, look, my responsibility is to shove that beer down their throat. Wow. Is that what you had the argument about? Uh, it was related to that. I mean, yeah. Is that what he was hired to do? Do you think that he that's, should have refused to do that? That's what he thought he was hired to do. It's how he interpreted the uh, designer's mission. I tended to think the uh, the designer's mission is somewhat more benign. What do you think the designer's mission is? To uh, the best of his ability, make things right with the understanding that there's a difference between making things right and uh, making things nice, which is what many designers uh, in the past thought their mission was. To make things nice as opposed to make things right. You also quoted a man named William Snaith, who was a managing partner at Raymond Lowy's office, back to Raymond. And he said that if somebody came to him at Raymond Lowy's office to create a bread package, maybe the best thing that they could do was to persuade him to get out of the bread business. And I'm wondering if you think that 
designers have too much of a role in creating needs for things that maybe aren't needed. Sure, but not just just designers. And and in uh, in deciding whether the extent to which that's true, we have to be very careful to allow for um, a wide variety of needs. I mean, some needs are urgent, you know, food, shelter, clothing. Some don't matter all that much, but um, some things one wants so passionately that it amounts almost to a need. You know, one of the areas where there is such a an extraordinary planned obsolescence is fashion. And it reminds me of a quote that you uh, included in your book about shoes. And you say that men's feet and women's feet are anatomically pretty much the same. But the point of shoe design is to keep anyone from noticing that. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could elaborate on why you think that women's shoes and men's shoes are designed so differently. I first confronted this issue when um, I, I was giving a talk to um, the American Association of University Women. And um, there were several speakers, and we were all on stage. And uh, each of the other speakers was the president of a women's college. Each of them male, by the way. Uh-huh. What year was this? Yeah. Uh, Sometime in the sixties. Okay, thankfully that's changed. Since yeah, then. Yes, but but that that was astonishing. And um, a woman, one of the questions from the audience addressed to me was why why are shoes so uncomfortable? And uh, all of us who are all male were sitting there facing the audience, and since we were sitting, our feet or our shoes were visible. And I said, well, if you would just look at us, you would imagine that um, we belong to a different species. I said, none of us have feet that look like yours, except <laughs> you know that underneath we all have feet that look like yours. You know, so we, we then talked about fashion. I don't know a lot about fashion and don't really write about it for that reason. But one thing that came up recently, about a week ago, I was giving a talk at the Cooper Hewitt on the uh, trajectory of um, design over the years as shown in their current exhibition, which is called Why Design Now? The Triennial. The Triennial. And the exhibition is uh, a very uh, serious, even highly serious uh, show dealing with a lot of things that designers did not used to deal with. Um, global warming, um, sustainability, you know, all, all the inwards. And uh, I was talking about critical response to that show and the fact that uh, Kerry Jacobs, who is a very astute critic, didn't like it uh, because she felt that the exhibition was too sober too self-righteous, too earnest, that we needed a little frivolity, a little levity, and uh, that maybe the pendulum has uh, swung too far. Well, I mean, I could see her point, but it made me think of the, uh, the pendulum, which um, I hadn't thought much of before, but I think 
really is a very unsatisfactory image for design, although we always use it. Pendulums can only go back and forth. It's a very narrow image. You can't move forward very far Hmm. at a time. And if you do, you know it's not going to last. And it seemed to me that design needs a much roomier metaphor to uh, encompass what you do. But it, it then occurred to me that in fashion, the pendulum really is the way you go. And uh, the image of the pendulum means that you have to keep making up reasons. For example, men's trousers all used to have cuffs. They all did. Then suddenly designers announced that cuffs were silly. They didn't do anything except uh, collect dirt and debris. And so they got rid of cuffs. But as um, re- regarding Paula Antonelli's uh, one about design being the highest expression of creativity. Do you agree? Do you agree that her, with her comment, design is the highest form of creativity? I agree that it can be. You know, something that isn't as much debated as it used to be is the question of whether design is art and whether there's a distinction between design and art. And um, I don't know, there's a lot to be said, a lot to be unsaid on that. But I, I always was uh, happiest with Charles Eames' formulation, which was that you you just design the best you can and uh, if it rises to the level of art, great. Somebody will tell you that, or you'll decide that. But uh, it doesn't always, and it doesn't have to. Whether it's uh, the highest expression of creativity, it's the highest in the sense that it has more of a certain kind of responsibility than art has. A lot of it has to do something. Certainly the highest thing we can ask of any discipline is to make things right and shape what people need. And I think not only is that a wonderful and apt definition for design, but I think it's a a wonderful and incredibly optimistic definition for what is possible from people. So thank you all for making that possible for us. And thank you for being here today. Thank you. Find out what Ralph Kaplan is writing about now by checking out the AIGA website, www.aiga.org. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.